morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. And a very special good morning, of course, to all of our friends around the world and around the country watching and listening. God bless you. We hope you had a wonderful week and that you will have a wonderful week to come. And thank you for joining us in our exposition of, of the Gospel of John. We love you. And thank you for saying hello to us and communicating with us from time to time. Um, first of all, let's stand and read through the passage we're going to unpack this morning, and then I'll allow you to be seated and pray over the, the passage before we begin to unpack it. I'll reverse the order somewhat this morning. John chapter 1, verses 43 to 46. Today we'll focus particularly on the calling of Philip. Gospel of John chapter 1, verses 43 to 46. The next day he, that is Jesus, the next day he purposed to go forth into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael, and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law, and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. These are the words of the Lord, and thanks be to God for them. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful day which points to the world to come. Thank you, Almighty God, Father, Son, and Spirit, for creating us to be part of your plan, for saving us to be part of your plan, and by way of sacred scripture, revealing yourself in your plan to be sinful human beings. Thank you for saving us to be part of this divine drama, which knows no end. We pray again for those who have been mentioned upon our prayer request list this morning, particularly those who are sick, ill, who need healing. Reveal yourself to them in the way, of course, Father God, that you know best. Give them the felt presence and power of your spirit to guide them through these experiences and to draw them closer to you. I pray in particular for our brothers and sisters in Nigeria who are being horribly persecuted. I pray for the peace of that country, for peace and order to be reestablished in that nation. And I pray for our brothers and sisters in Jesus who are literally giving their lives for the gospel even as we speak. Heal that country. We pray that you would stop the violence some way, somehow, and to spare the lives of our Christian brothers and sisters. And those who are fleeing across the borders to other countries, we know they will take the gospel with them. This is often how the gospel spreads through the persecuted church, no different than 20 centuries ago. Please help our brothers and sisters in any way and every way. And help us to be responsible and do our duty by them in any way that we can. We pray for the power of your spirit and the proclamation of your words. Speak to people throughout this country and throughout this world by our humble little efforts by way of the Gospel of John to bring sinners to repentance and eternal life and to strengthen the souls and the hearts and minds of your people here and the world over. May everything that is said and done here this morning bring praise and honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ, He who is the Word made flesh. May the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. 
So in today's text, we move... Ah, wonderful picture. I'll get to that in a moment. <laughs> today's text, we move on into, of course, further into, deeper into the early days of Jesus' public ministry after his duel with the evil one in the wilderness and after he furthering and the Father furthering, revealing him in the event, very important event of Jesus' baptism. So the Word made flesh continues as in last week's passage that we unpacked. He continues to gather around him his personal disciples, matetes in the Greek, a student, a pupil, a learner, but a person who is expected to learn and emulate the character and nature and personality of their master teacher, as all followers of Jesus are to do. He is calling the men who are chosen from a divine plan from eternity past to join the Messiah in his mission in his first advent. And these men, of course, will serve and help him to inaugurate his kingdom in this world. And so Jesus, in today's text, he continues to acquire two more disciples, Philip and Nathaniel. Um, I warned you before we started the Gospel of John, I'll probably have to divide the text in some places, in some rather awkward places here and there, because I want to give honor that honor is due to each and every verse. So there will be times where I will probably have to divide a passage that you're used to hearing in one message. No, you're going to hear that passage in three or four messages because we're, we're going to dig deep in and through all of it. Usually folks just simply cover verse 43 to the end of the chapter in one fell swoop. We're not going to do that. We're going to focus today on the calling of Philip and the next time the calling of Nathaniel and give these two men the attention that their calling in the text is due. Uh, the Word made flesh is now entering the world stage. He is now entering out upon the center of the divine drama in Palestine in the first century A.D., all according to a divine plan. And Jesus is slowly but surely revealing himself, his true identity, his true mission, although that was given to us in the prologue from John the Apostle. But he's now revealing it to people in the world around him at the time of his arrival. He'll start locally, here, the wilderness, Bethany, this place east of the Jordan River, to the north, so I believe, and uh, then he will take a short jog back into Galilee. He's not done with Galilee yet. There's more work to be done in his old home province before he goes to the capital of Jerusalem and to other provinces of the old nation of Israel. So, uh, in today's text, today and next time with Philip and Nathaniel, you're going to be in the last of four successive days. The Apostle John takes us through four successive days in the remainder of chapter 1. And here we find that Jesus, of course, he has finished his task and his goals in this immediate vicinity and in the heights of the desert just beyond. And now he wishes, as the text tells us, to go back into Galilee. That's the plan. There's more to be done in the old home province, so in this passage as well, and throughout the, the remainder of the chapter, we're going to discover some pretty amazing truths that are going to be said about Jesus. He's going to say some pretty amazing things about himself and his mission in the remainder of chapter 1. He will reveal his, continue to reveal his true identity as Messiah as he does continue to slowly reveal who he is, what he is, his divine identity, his mission to these men who will be disciples. And Philip and Nathaniel themselves have some pretty wonderful things to say about Jesus. These recorded events, of course, it's all recorded, real space, real-time history, not myth, not legend. These events are recorded by the Apostle John to, of course, inform you, the reader, the listener of this gospel, 
You're being confronted with all of this truth. You're being confronted with who he is, what he is, why he came. You're being confronted with, all right, here's the truth. How, how are you going to respond? What are you going to do with this? The same as these folks that I'm writing, that I'm recording in my gospel. That's what John is saying to us. How are we to respond to these events? Are we going to emulate these men and follow after him? What's our response to this gospel? I'm going to keep 30, 43 and verse 44 together so as we don't interrupt the flow of John's thought in his paragraph, in particularly in the, in the original. 43 and 44. The next day he, that is Jesus of course, the next day he purposed to go forth into Galilee and he found Philip. He found Philip. Interesting detail. And Jesus said to him, very simple, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city or the town, that is, of Andrew and Peter. So first of all, notice that Jesus apparently takes the incentive to call Philip, to recruit Philip. That is interesting. That's the first time that this occurs here. But Jesus accepts these men. He welcomes them in. He's drawing them in all the same. But it seems that he goes out of his way to approach Philip. Raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? Is Philip afraid? Philip hesitant, Philip lagging a little bit back behind in the crowd. He doesn't quite know what to do or how to approach this Jesus or whether or not he really wants to believe the things that are being said about him. He really doesn't quite know whether or not he's going to make a commitment or not. It's interesting to note that Jesus goes after him as he comes after us. That's what he does with all of his disciples in one way, shape, or form at one time or another. So apparently Jesus takes the initiative to call and recruit Philip. He found Philip. Now it's interesting also to consider, remember last week's passage? John the baptizer sends young John and Andrew to follow after Jesus. They're sent. But Jesus, of course, welcomes them in. He draws them in. And then Andrew, who in turn goes back to Bethsaida and Capernaum where the family is living, he fetches his brother Simon and he brings him back to Jesus at this place, probably up 13 miles or so below the Sea of Galilee. He brings Simon. Simon obeys. He comes along. Good for Simon. But it seems that Jesus here approaches this man, Philip. He makes a point to seek him out. Although there, I believe there's a distinct possibility that Philip followed along when Andrew went to go get Peter and brought Simon Peter Cephas. Remember the naming ceremony from last week and all that that means. So Philip probably tagged along. Probably a few, well, perhaps a number of people tagged along. Friends, family, to go see this Jesus, what John the baptizer was saying about him, to go see what Andrew and John had said about him for themselves. Here's the thing you have to understand about these folks. Um, I agree with the Bible scholars who believe that this Bethany east of the Jordan River is only about 13 miles below the Sea of Galilee and only about 20 miles away from Jesus' hometown, which explains a lot of what's going on here in chapter 1. They're in pretty close proximity for a lot of folks from Galilee, and probably people by the hundreds and the thousands have been coming down from some weeks that distance, relatively short distance, to see John the baptizer, to take him in to be baptized by John, to receive his preaching, especially to take in these amazing things 
that he's saying about the arrival of the Messiah. So it's, it really wouldn't be any big deal for these people to go back and forth from their villages along the Sea of Galilee to where John is on the outskirts of the desert. Um, most of these people around the villages of the Sea of Galilee, um, no insult to the wonderful Sea of Galilee. It's one of the most important pieces of geography on the face of the earth. But to we here in North America, it's just a big lake. Uh, it's only about 8.10 miles wide and only about 13 miles long. Uh, as a body of water, it covers about 64, 65 square miles. And these little scattered fishing villages are, are about its perimeter. Most of these folks, even from other villages, they would know one another. They would have worked alongside each other or known one another in passing in the fishing industry along the lake. So they were probably friends, co-workers. Um, uh, many of these people, and I think some of the disciples, were actually related to each other, if not by blood, but by marriage. Even the, the disciples who weren't uh, brothers of one another, they probably had brothers-in-law or cousins-in-law. They were probably related by the intermarriage of these working-class fisher folks along the Sea of Galilee. So, in a way, this was something of an apostolic family affair or an affair of friends or acquaintances, these folks being called in as Jesus' first disciples. Okay? Now, about their town. Notice the Apostle John is particular to point out, he tells us here in verse 44, that Philip was from the same town as Andrew and Peter, Bethsaida. Now this is interesting. The, the remark that he's making at the time that the gospel was written and in the original tongue, he's saying they're, they're, they were born at the same town. They come from the same hometown. Uh, they're not exactly living in exactly the same place now. If you uh, examine all the four Gospels, Peter and Andrew were born in Bethsaida. Philip was probably born there as well. But at the time that they're called, Andrew and Peter are actually living out of Capernaum, which is very close by. So John is saying they probably knew each other from their childhood. They were, they were all three born in the same place. So there's a long relationship there. As for Bethsaida, you may be, uh, we Americans usually kind of butcher the name. We usually say Bethsaida, Bethsaida. Uh, they would have pronounced it Bethsaida, uh, B-E-T-H-S-A-I-D-A. Uh, you've probably have heard me give you this information before from Bible study, but B-E-T-H is the Hebrew word for house. B-E-T-H, we would say Beth, they pronounce it Beit. Beit Saida means house of something. In this case, it means house of fishing. How appropriate is that? If we were to translate that into colloquial English, this community would probably be called Fisherville, Fishertown, something akin to that. Obviously, it is so named for the rather long, by several generations now, the long-established and thriving fishing industry there. And again, most folks from these scattered lakefront villages along the Sea of Galilee they were all attached to this fishing industry in some way or another. Somehow, probably some of them supplemented their income by farming. It's interesting to note, of course, Philip is a Jewish man. And he has a Gentile name, just like Andrew. We believe that Philip was a pious, orthodox, as we would say, traditionally say, a God-fearing man, a pious, orthodox Jew. Why? Because he's there. He wants to see if this Messiah really is the Messiah. He's coming along for the ride to listen to John 
the baptizer to find out what all this is about. But it's interesting, it does have a Gentile name, just as Andrew. And again, let me point out to you, this is going to be important as we work our way through the gospel. And Jesus is going to confront some of this. The Romans conquered Palestine and made Palestine, old Israel, a series of Roman provinces about 63 B.C. This is 27 A.D. So by this time, the Jewish people have had a lot of Greco-Roman culture shoved down their throat, pardon the expression, or they've been living under Greco-Roman culture and rule. And by this time, some of these folks had adopted it to a certain degree, in some ways all right, morally neutral, in some ways not so good. We believe most of these folks spoke Koine Greek, the commercial language of the Roman Empire, the language in which the Bible is written, than what we'd formerly thought. And some of these Jewish folks were taking a Greco-Roman name as well as a Jewish name for business or for convenience. Obviously, this is the case with Andrew and Philip. Philip's name in the Greek, my parents probably, you should have named me Philip instead of our old ancestry from the wild people up there in the north of the British Isles. Philip's name in Greek means lover of horses. Love that. He should be a Virginian or a Kentuckian. Philip means lover of horses. And Philip was a very, very popular Greco-Roman name in the first century A.D. And this, the name Philip, of course, comes from the most, one of the most famous of the old Greek and Macedonian kings. You folks should know who this is if you know your ancient history. Who was Alexander the Great's father? Philip of Macedon. Hence the popularity of the name. And Philip's calling here... Look how simplistic it is. I have, well, there's a reason why these events and some of these truths are stated so simplistically. But it's amazing that Philip's calling, the day that's going to change his eternal destiny, is stated so simply, so short and sweet as we would put it, in John's account. He, that is Jesus, he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. So the most profound and important day of Philip's life that would change him literally forever. It's all summed up so simply by John. John who probably knows him very, very well. John who may have been present and witnessed this. He probably did. An important note here, again, Jesus sought out Philip. Does this remind us of the words of Jesus as recorded by Dr. Luke in Luke's Gospel? I believe it's chapter 14 in particular of the Gospel of Luke, which is all about this theme. The Messiah, the Son of God, God the Son, came to seek and save that which was lost. That is precisely what he's doing here. For whatever reason, and it may be only the business of Jesus and Philip, he makes a point to go to this man and to approach him and just simply say, follow me. It may have been Jesus was saying this, you have been hearing for some time now about who I am. Have you been listening to my cousin John? I believe you have. Probably for some weeks now. Therefore, I'm coming to you. I'm confronting you now. Follow me. Personal invitation. But he invites all of us personally by way of his word and by way of his spirit in this particular time of history. He still seeks after human beings he came to save. That's the point in John recording this in his gospel. The same with Philip, the same with us. All of us who will become his disciples. As he said to Philip, he says to everybody who is going to hear and who is going to read this gospel, he's saying this to you folks all over the world. 
and all over the United States. And he's saying this to everyone here this morning, whether you have not followed him yet or whether you have not been following him as you should have been all along or whether you have been following him for years. He is still saying by way of this gospel this morning, follow me and everything that that means. The question now is, do we? Have we? Will we? It's interesting to recall, let me take you onto a little trip into the future in the Gospel of John. It's interesting that in chapter 12 we will find a little contingent, a little body of Greeks who are visiting Judea and they want to visit the capital city and they want to visit the temple complex and they're of course in the court of the Gentiles, the large outer court which was permissible for Gentiles to roam. And it's interesting that these group of Greeks probably somewhat philosophers, we assume, who want to hear all the exciting metaphysical and philosophical new ideas of the day, and obviously word of Jesus, the rabbi from Galilee, who's gaining great attention and notoriety for himself, has come to them. These Greeks who wish to see Jesus, who do they approach? Philip and Andrew, the two disciples who have Greek names. And they go to Philip and Andrew to ask if Jesus would grant them an audience if Jesus would speak with them. Jesus issued to Philip. He still issues to all of us the fundamental challenge. Follow me. Now, while this information about Philip, this isn't the last that we'll hear about Philip in this gospel. We will hear from Philip in in several different incidents throughout the remainder of the gospel, all through the remainder of the gospel. While this information about Philip, well, this is John's gospel. We believe that John knew Philip very, very well. That's why we have more information about he and Andrew in this gospel. Also, by early church history and tradition, I found this interesting. Early church history and tradition tells us that John and Philip remained in pretty close contact with one another throughout the the remainder of their lives, throughout the remainder of their ministry. And they stayed in close contact with one another as they were able, even later in life, up until the time that Philip was martyred. We're not certain, but this very well may be so. And now what's one of the most important parts about the text? Philip obeyed. He obeyed. It's interesting. He may have been lagging behind, being non-committal before, but when Jesus approaches him directly, if you were to take the text at face value, he seems to have almost immediately followed Jesus and committed and devoted himself to him as his friends recently had. Very interesting. Philip seems to immediately join the others in following Jesus. Why is this? Was he convinced because of his friends all along? Well, probably to a degree. Had he been listening to John the baptizer and what he was saying about the Messiah, and he had pointed out Jesus as the Messiah, I would say more than a distinct possibility. Had he by this time was putting his messianic hopes for the arrival of the Messiah on Jesus? A distinct possibility. All of the above? Probably. But also, never forget this, Jesus himself. This is God Almighty in human flesh. And he is somewhat incognito, if I may use the expression. And his divinity is somewhat veiled, camouflaged behind that human body and that human nature. But I think we could all agree, Philip had never met anybody like this man ever before, nor will he since. And when you meet Jesus, you have never met anybody like him before, nor will you since. He hadn't, and neither will we. He is the divine word. Remember the prologue? 
the divine Son of God who is God the Son, God the Father's agent in creation. He is humanity's original meaning and purpose, and Philip is now meeting him in the flesh as prophesied. I think that's also one of the reasons why, unquestionably, he decided to follow Jesus and respond to his call that day. The reason why I'm going to, all through this gospel, keep referring to Jesus in terms of the prologue, there's a reason for that. And I told you this when we went through the prologue. Why does John begin his gospel with that prologue? Well, one of the reasons is this. Absolutely every single solitary thing that you read throughout the remainder of the gospel, you must view through the lens of what you learned in the prologue. That's why John begins with the full deity of Jesus as God the Son in eternity past. He's saying everything that you read about this man all throughout the remainder of my gospel, he is the word made flesh from the prologue. Never forget that. You must always remember that. Verse 45. Philip found Nathanael. There's a pattern here already now, isn't there? Andrew finds Peter. Philip goes to Nathanael. There's a pattern that we are to follow as well. Philip found Nathanael, said to him, this is an amazing thing. He's really putting it together. I believe by the help of his friends and John the baptizer and of course the Spirit of God, He's stating one of the most important fundamental truths of the entire Bible here. That's why I decided to go, oh, no, we're just going to stay with Philip this Sunday. And then we'll move to Nathaniel next time. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So first Philip found Nathaniel. He went to find someone else that he knew, someone else that he cared for. What's the life lesson here? It should be obvious. It's the same as last week. When one encounters Jesus, when one experiences Jesus, the divine word, you are to go and get somebody else. Go and get others and start at home. Grassroots, is that what we call it? Start with your family. Start with your personal friends. Start with your neighbors, those who are in your immediate sphere of influence, and work your way out from there. That's the pattern. That's how this is supposed to work, folks. And it's no different in the first century A.D. than what it is now. Go get others. We are not to keep this to ourselves. The importance and effectiveness of personal witness. That's what John is describing here. It's so vital then and now. I quoted dear old Dr. D.A. Carson. He made a few remarks upon these passages concerning the contemporary Christian's witness and how we are to learn from the first apostles and their calling. I'll share another quote from him. He hits the nail on the head. Pardon me, I'm using all these colloquial expressions this morning. Forgive me. He writes, This has been the model. This has been the foundational principle of Christian expansion ever since, from then till today. New followers of Jesus bear witness of him to others. They in turn become disciples, and they in turn repeat the process. And so on, and so on, and so on, and so on. That's precisely what you and I are supposed to be doing. The question is, are we? Are you? If not, you should be. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. We are to emulate their example. This is the model. This is the pattern. That how the church is to operate in this world and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ and bring people to Jesus. This is how it is to work from the first century A.D. until the second advent arrives and Christ returns. 
Now this man's name is Nathaniel. A little bit about this name. Nathaniel was most probably another personal friend from back home in nearby Galilee. And if he wasn't a friend, he may have been a relative by marriage. Nathaniel has a meaningful name. As I hope you understood from last week's passage, did you all get from last week's passage that the renaming of Peter is something really amazing? And it's much more important than what we think at a cursory or surface reading of the text? Well, I told you last week that a person's name was a really big deal in the ancient world to various cultures at that time. It wasn't just a label. It wasn't just a basic badge of identification as it is now. Your name was meaningful. In the ancient world, these folks believed that your name molded your personality. It may have even molded your future. It defined you and your life in some way. Now, Nathaniel's name means God gives. God gives. Nathaniel. God gives or God has given. How is that for an appropriate name? For a man who will become an apostle of the word made flesh. And this day of all days, when Nathaniel meets Jesus, he will meet the God who gives in the flesh. And God the Son will give Nathaniel the greatest gifts of all. And Nathaniel will in turn be expected to proclaim God's gifts of the God who gives to those around him for the remainder of his life until he will give his life for he who is the Word made flesh. Now we should take note that Nathaniel here, if you want a little bit of apostolic history, he's the same man as Bartholomew that you find in the other Gospels. He's probably the disciple Bartholomew or the man called Bartholomew in the other Gospels. You understand? That is to say Nathaniel and Bartholomew, they're one and the same person. And his name Bartholomew is meaningful as well. It's a very Jewish name. It means Bartholomeus or son of Ptolemaeus. And he is linked to Philip in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels. So they're probably pretty close friends, or once again, extended family. Now, Nathaniel or Bartholomew, that's, I'm going to give you something about him from the future. This is probably one of the reasons that we find Jesus and his mother and his brothers and sisters and his disciples in Cana in chapter 2. That's where Nathaniel's from. But John doesn't tell us that until all the way later in chapter 1. He tells us in chapter 1, or pardon me, chapter 21, that Nathaniel or Bartholomew was from Cana in Galilee. Exactly the same town where in chapter 2 Jesus will perform what we traditionally call his first public miracle, turning water into wine at a wedding in Cana. And John will call it not a miracle, he'll call it a sign, a simeon, the first of the signs which points to Jesus' true identity and his mission. Now what Philip says to Nathaniel about Jesus is, of course, very significant. I'm going to give you the word order in the original Greek. Because it's very interesting. Um, there's one thing you have to know about translation. Always the best translations are word-for-word -word equivalent from Greek into English from the original text. Those are the only real Bible translations to trust folks. But sometimes, you, you must understand, in Koine Greek, the word order in which they wrote and spoke is somewhat different from English. So what a Bible translator has to do is sometimes, just for the convenience for an English-speaking person, an English reader, to make it a little less awkward, you have to rearrange the word order sometimes. But I'm going to give you the word order in the original Greek, which is this. The one about whom Moses wrote in the law, the one about whom the prophets wrote, we have found. It's Jesus. 
son of Joseph, the one from Nazareth. Now, first of all, can you imagine how exciting this will be to a Galilean to hear that the prophesied anointed one for centuries upon whom every righteous, orthodox, God-fearing Israelite has placed all of their hopes that he's from Galilee? He's a Galilean? Can you imagine how excited that would make these people? Now, when Jesus returns, it's going to be a cosmic event. Everybody the world over is going to see it all at once because it's a supernatural event. But it's as if, what, can you imagine if at the second advent, Jesus returned here first? To our region, to our town, to our county, to our state, to this area first? So put yourself in their shoes. How excited would these people be? He's a Galilean? He's from around here? He's arrived and he's one of us? And then you have to see what a profound truth Philip is saying. A lot of folks in going through this text, they just completely barrel over what this man is saying. It's one of the most important truths in the entire Bible. Yes, Philip is a blessed man to come to this realization. And yes, he has a great deal of help from the Holy Spirit of God in coming to this realization. Very blessed man. He is receiving this information from the Spirit. He has received this information to a degree from John the Baptizer and perhaps from some of his friends who are becoming apostles of Jesus. He may have even heard something about Jesus' messianic identity at this time from Jesus himself, even though he spent a very short time with Jesus at this time. But Philip is announcing to his friend one of the greatest foundational truths of the Bible of the Old Testament and of the Gospels. And that's what John is confronting us with here by way of Philip. He is saying Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. It's all about Him. It all points to He who is the Word made flesh. This man is saying that Jesus, the rabbi from Galilee, He is the meaning, He is the reality behind all of it. He is the final meaning and the final purpose of it all. Philip is saying, in short, that Jesus is the one, capital T-H-E, capital O-N-E. He is the one that the Old Testament era, the, all of Old Testament history, all the Old Testament history recorded in the sacred scriptures, Jesus is the one that it was all pointing forward to, that it was all looking forward to, that it was all anticipating. He's saying that to you. Do you realize that? Do you know that? Read your Old Testament with this truth in mind. When you're reading the Old Testament, you are reading the story of Jesus, which points to Him, which anticipates Him. He is there. As one old theologian used to say, God forgive me, I forget who said this wonderful quote in generations past. When you read the Bible, not only the New Testament, but the Old Testament, the presence of Jesus rustles on every single page. Look for Him there. He is there. And we're, going to, well, we're starting to study First and Second Samuel. And we're going to be studying the life of Jesus' direct great ancestor, David, the great Jewish king himself, whom Jesus is a direct descendant of him. Folks, he's there. And I hope we do our duty in looking for Jesus in First and Second Samuel. You see the conflation expression that he's using? You probably heard this from rabbis in the synagogue. Moses and the law, the one of whom the prophets wrote. Basically, it's a conflation, a formulaic statement of the whole Old Testament. When he says Moses and the law, of course he means the Pentateuch, the first five books of the, of the law, the first five books of Moses, the beloved Torah of the Jewish people. Yes, Jesus is there. When you read it, look for him. And when he says the one of whom the prophets wrote, well, that, isn't that obvious? 
The minor prophets, those who wrote the shorter books. The major prophets, those who wrote the longer books. Jesus is there. They are prophesying him. He is most certainly there. So John the author is confronting us by way of this event, Philip's words to Nathaniel. He is confronting us with the same fundamental foundational truth. The ancient scriptures, the Old Testament, it is God's inspired word. It is God revealing himself and his plan to humanity. First the Jewish people and then to the people of the world. And it is ultimately all about Jesus. The word made flesh to the prologue. The man who John says is the Lamb of God who has come to take people's sins up and off away from them permanently and forever. Yes, he is the one who is the ultimate revelation of God to human beings. That's why the scriptures is all about him, of course. So, like these men, what is John confronting you and I with right now at this moment? Follow the Lamb. He says to follow him, follow him. Philip is following him. Are you following him? Are you really? Are you going to? That's what he's confronting us with. Become a disciple of the Messiah. Because he's the great hero of all the sacred scriptures. He's the word made flesh. Now when Philip says in Greek, Jesus, son of Joseph, the one from Nazareth, this is important too. That's not a throwaway statement. As a Jew, he's using typical language of that time in Jewish culture for identifying someone. First, of course, he gives his personal name. By the way, what does Jesus mean? Yeshua, Yahweh saves. How's that for the personal human name of God the Son? The Word became flesh. But also, according to Jewish culture, you've got to have a good family connection. You have to name the name of the Father, the legal in this case, the legal guardian, the legal father by Jewish law and culture of Jesus. And, of course, you mentioned their city, town, or village, the place where you presume they were born. Okay? Not necessarily the place where they're living now. This is important. This is important for Jesus and his humanity. He is legally the son of Joseph. This is part of Jesus' messianic pedigree, his messianic credentials, his messianic and Davidic claim to David's throne. Let me walk you through this. Jesus is perfectly human and he is perfectly divine. He received his human body and his human nature from his mother. So by blood from his mother, he is a direct blood descendant of King David. But also he has to have these credentials on his father's side by Jewish tradition and culture and by their law. Well, Jesus does not have a human father, now does he? In spite of what slanderous unbelievers say, his father is God the Almighty himself, no biological human father. He was conceived in the womb of his mother by the power of the Spirit of God. Nevertheless, his father, his human father, his surrogate father, if you will, must be a direct descendant of King David. Joseph was. And Joseph is the legal guardian of Jesus. So his messianic pedigree must not only be on his mother's side, but on his father's side. And that is what John is reminding us of here. Jesus' right to the claim of King David's throne. Now notice something interesting here. There's something these men don't know about Jesus yet. Philip mentions Nazareth as the place where Jesus was from, as in the place where he was born, place where he grew up, place where he was from now. Where was Jesus actually born? Very important to his messianic pedigree. 
He wasn't born in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem. The what? The city of David, the great king. But Philip doesn't know that. For all he knows at this particular time, Jesus was born, raised, lived his life in Nazareth down the road. So he doesn't know that, but he will. You see, he's not quite clued in of the complete story of Jesus. He doesn't have all the answers yet. That's an important part of the story. But he's going to find out. He doesn't know all of Jesus' messianic pedigree. It's right in line. It's perfect. And of course, he doesn't know that the Messiah at this particular time not only must be a human being, David's descendant, but he has to be divine. If you read the Old Testament Scriptures carefully, the divinity of Jesus is there. It's in the Old Testament as well. Verse 46, now here's the answer. And I think Nathaniel is giving this answer not just because he's prejudiced about Nazareth. I think he knows his Bible. And this is one of the reasons why he's casting scorn at Nazareth. Let me explain. Verse 46, And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip says to him, Come and see. <laughs> That's an absolutely wonderful irony. Go ahead, smile. I don't want to be the only person in the room smiling. You'll smile at this if you've been a believer for some time. You go back and you read this verse and you have to smile or chuckle at the outrageous irony of what this man is saying. Now, Nathaniel in the original Greek word order, I'll give you the original word order, he responds with this, Out of Nazareth, can any good thing come? That's his remark. And oh, how little does this man now know or suppose. This may be personal scorn, probably. Personal prejudice to a certain degree. Is it probably small town rivalry? Yes, I would say there's an ingredient of that in there as well. Or Nathaniel could be saying this. I think he knows his Bible. Remember this. What, Philip, what Nathaniel will say to Jesus and what Jesus will say to Nathaniel next time we meet, we're going to really look at that and what's going on there. I think Nathaniel is a man that knows his Old Testament that knows his Bible. That's why Philip quotes the Old Testament to him in the first place. Okay? Out of Nazareth, can anything good come? In other words, I think Nathaniel's saying this, Nazareth, that place, that's not in the Old Testament. You don't find Nazareth in the Old Testament Scriptures. Not that place. It isn't prophesied that the Messiah comes from Nazareth. That's nowhere in the Bible. That's nowhere in the Torah or the writings of the prophets. Nazareth isn't mentioned in the Old Testament. Well, that do-nothing, know-nothing, insignificant place, why? Did... It has only about 2,000 people living there or so. That place is not of any account. That's what he's saying. What's the life lesson here? The irony here? God's ways are not ours. God's ways are not ours. How often all throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, are we confronted with that? The ways of the sovereign God are not the ways of fallen, sinful human beings. Proof again in this man's attitude. God's ways are not man's ways. The one true living God. His modus operandi, as the Romans would say. His mode of operation, his way of doing things, has always been well nigh completely counter to sinful human beings. Totally countercultural to sinful human beings. Think about it. Be honest. If the Messiah was going to arrive into this world, where would he arrive? Well, it was prophesied that he would be born in Bethlehem. Well, that happened. Where would he go from there? Come on, admit it. Where would he go from there? Rome! 
Athens, the philosophical center of the first century world, even though it was becoming something of a backwater to Rome at that time. No, no, Jerusalem, the city of the... Nothing of the kind. He's so lowly, he's so humble, he's so countercultural to sinful human beings that after he fulfills all the prophecies, the messianic pedigree, to the last dot of the last eye, being born in Bethlehem, where does he go? Nazareth. A town that isn't even mentioned in the Old Testament. How's that for humility for you? Of God Almighty the Son, the Word made flesh, He who spoke the universe into an existence, He who is its meaning and its purpose. He didn't go to Jerusalem. Little old know-nothing, do-nothing, one-horse town Nazareth to be prepared for the greatest mission that ever took place in the history of this world or this universe for that matter. How's that for humility? What's the lesson here? He always does things differently than we would like or we would assume or that we would imagine. He always does. Never forget that. Oh my, does he remind me of that a lot. A lot. My ways are not your ways. My thinking is not your way of thinking. My way of doing things is as high as the heavens are above the earth. Don't forget it. Look for it. Listen for it. Watch for him. That's how he operates. Be on your guard. Or let me use another colloquial expression. You're going to see this through this gospel, and you're seeing it here. How many times does Jesus just flat pull the rug out from underneath everybody, so to speak? in his life and his ministry. He does it all the time. He's doing it here. Right? And now notice, this is one of the most important parts of this text, and people just barrel right over it. Now notice what's Philip's answer. He answers simply, come and see. Now a lot of folks take pot shots at Philip here for doing that. I disagree entirely. They say, well, he should have known better. He should have given him some mile-long theological, metaphysical, philosophical answer. He should have been as long-winded as you, Scott. Pardon me. He just says, come and see. And they sort of go after him for that. Don't go after him for that. Look at what he's really saying. We're going to do that right now. He just simply answers, come and see. Well, then come and see. Come and see. Come and see. Oh, I'm seeing a few light bulbs go off. Who's that sound like? Who does that remind us of? Come and see. That's right. Jesus. Jesus himself. Have you forgotten so quickly? The words of Jesus to Andrew and John, verse 38 and 39. And Jesus turned and beheld them following and said, What do you want? Really? What do you seek? They said, when Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And Jesus said to them, come. You'll see. How can anything come out of Nazareth? The Messiah isn't supposed to be born there. That's not even in the Old Testament Scriptures. Come and see. Something interesting might be happening there. Philip is basically quoting Jesus, isn't he? Some way or another, he might already be emulating his teacher as a devoted disciple and student should. Do we? 
Do we quote him? Do we speak like him? Do we emulate him? You see, I think we should be kind to Philip. We don't know for sure, but it's a distinct possibility that Jesus has already had, oh, a considerable influence upon this man, possibly. He's already speaking like Jesus. That's what he said to John and Andrew. Now, Philip wasn't there when Jesus said this to John and Andrew, but you can bet he heard about it. He knew about it. He's saying, come on, Nathaniel, just as Jesus said to them. Come on, come see for yourself, just as I did. You'll see. Come and meet Jesus. You'll see. You'll see that it's all true. What's the life lesson here, believers? Who are we inviting to come to Jesus, the Word made flesh? To whom do we say, come meet Jesus, you'll see. Come and see for yourself. It's all true. Do you dare? Come and see. Come and see if you don't believe me. See for yourself. That is something of an evangelistic thing to say, isn't it? Come and see. It's an evangelistic answer from one of the Bible's most evangelistic books. And yes, we should emulate Philip. We'll close with this. That's why I wanted to focus on this man. And we'll focus on Nathaniel. And through this entire gospel, we're going to focus on people that we should focus on. Because some of the most important conversations ever recorded in the history of this planet are in this gospel. We should emulate Philip. We should emulate Philip in answering unquestioningly Jesus' call. His immediacy in obeying the Word made flesh. Obeying Jesus' bidding. Obeying His invitation to follow Him. To join Him. Yes, we should follow Philip's example by bringing others we know to Jesus at the earliest opportunity and every opportunity. Yes, we should emulate Philip in challenging those who are skeptical to come and see. Yes, we should follow Philip's example in realizing with the help of the Spirit of God and the Word of God but there is human accountability as well. We should follow Philip's example in realizing, in appropriating, in submitting to the truth that yes, this old ancient book, all of those old ancient messianic passages in that ancient book, they were all true. They are actually the words of the creator of the universe. And they all agree on Jesus. They all settle on, they all describe, they all point to Jesus. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Confucius, not any of them. Jesus the Christ, the Word made flesh, the Son of the living God. This is the book of ultimate truth, and there is no other. And this book of ultimate truth, the one and the only... It all points to the same person, and that person is Jesus of Nazareth, the Word made flesh. And yes, we should emulate Philip in confronting and challenging someone, anyone we know, who is skeptical that this is all the absolute truth. The absolute truth of he who is the truth, he who is the personification of all truth, and he who is the source of all truth. And to his credit, yes again, with the help of the Spirit of God. Why do I keep saying that? Because we have to realize we do not save ourselves. He saves us 100% and beyond. We are not saved because of ourselves. We are saved in spite of ourselves. And when these men come to the realization of who Jesus truly is, not only are they getting it from Jesus, God, the Son, and the flesh, they are receiving this information by the power and presence of God, the Holy Spirit. 
and all by a divine plan of God Almighty the Father from eternity past. That's what's going on here. But to his credit, where human accountability must be mentioned, now there's the issue of Nathaniel. Nathaniel takes up his friend's challenge. To his credit, he takes up the challenge. All right, I'll go and see. Prove it to me. What this Nazareth business? He'll find out he was born in Bethlehem. He'll see. Nathaniel goes. And oh, does Jesus convince him. Nathaniel makes an incredible declaration about Jesus. And Nathaniel will hear Jesus say a pretty incredible thing about himself. This account of Philip and Nathaniel, take heart, learn a lesson. It ends well. It ends very well. And we are meant to learn from it, and we're meant to profit by it. Let me give you a short quote from Brother Leon Morris, a wonderful theologian from a generation or so ago. By the way, if you, if, if you see any book by Leon Morris, get, you know, get it and read it. And sadly, um, some of the books of Brother Leon Morris are, are not in print, and they should be. And I think a an act of divine providence in my life was finding a book on, uh, about the Gospel of John written by Leon Morris in a used bookstore. Now, you can get Leon Morris's commentary, but he also wrote a wonderful little book, a devotional commentary called Expository Reflections on the Gospel of John. If you find this book, get it. It is a wonderful book. And Leon Morris, he gives a whole chapter to Philip. And in his chapter to Philip, one of the main points that he makes, and it's an important point, Philip is doing the right thing even though he doesn't yet have all the answers about Jesus. He's still obeying Jesus when he doesn't have all the answers about Jesus. That's okay. That's all right. That's one of the main points that he makes about Philip's calling. And so, dear Brother Morris writes, As was the case with Andrew and Peter, as was the case with Philip and Nathaniel, we too may profitably reflect that it is not always necessary to know all the answers before we can point another person to Christ, before we bring another person to Jesus. And so, yes, render acceptable and fruitful service to God and to Jesus. These words have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in His name, and so that you may bring others to Him that they may have life in His name. Sovereign Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank You for Brother Philip and Brother Nathaniel and all that their life with You, with Your Son made flesh, with the gentle compelling of the Spirit, all that their story means to us. Help us to take the time to examine these brothers who went before us carefully, their relationship to you carefully, their obedience to you carefully, their response to you carefully, and thereby apply those same principles and truths to our life. And by the power of your Spirit, help all hearing this text being proclaimed. Help them to do the same. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.